how God was seeking a bride for his son. Each book is different from every other book. I'm trying to give you the keys for you to unlock it for yourself. You're listening to Unlocking the Bible by David Pawson. Visual materials featured in this talk can be found online at davidpawson.org. This is Nahum. Gottes Mullen Malen Langsam Malen Abertreflich Klein Obans Langmutter Six Samet Bringt mit Schaf Alles Ein Which is a little German poem which translated into English by Longfellow reads, Though the mills of God grind slowly, yet they grind exceeding small, though with patience he stands waiting, with exactness grinds he all. There is a time when God's patience runs out. He is incredibly patient, amazingly merciful, but there comes a time when God's had enough. That is the message of the prophets. Jonah just got the timing wrong. It was still the time of God's mercy and patience with Nineveh and Jonah thought it ought not to be. But Nahum, 150 years later, the time had come and Nahum was sent with the same message of destruction but this time there was no hope. This time there was no way that they could respond positively. You see, the opposite extreme is to think that God will never be angry and never punish and never destroy or wipe out a city or a nation. But he will and he does. He may be slow to anger but that doesn't mean he never will be angry. In fact, God's anger is like a pan of milk on the stove. It is simmering for quite a long time and then suddenly it boils over. And if your eyes are open, you'll see it simmering. His anger is simmering over our nation at this moment. If your eyes are open, you can see it. When will it boil over? That's the question. People who don't watch it don't notice it simmering and suddenly the milk's boiled over and, and my wife's running from the lounge to the kitchen. The milk's boiling over. If you watch it, you, you're not caught out. Well now, 150 years we have Nahum. Just let me uh, put him in the picture. He came from the north again, as I've told you. We need to remember that after Solomon died, they were never united again. They had civil war and ten tribes in the north divided from the two in the south. The ten tribes in the north kept the name Israel and the two in the south, Benjamin and Judah, took the name of the biggest, Judah. So there was a, a clear division. And remember, Jonah came from the north when the ten tribes had separated out and so did Nahum. Now, just a little bit of history. See, these are the kings in the north, the north kings, Ahab, I'm sure you've heard of Ahab and his uh, wicked Jezebel queen. Then came Jeroboam the second. That's when Jonah went to Nineveh, then Pekah, then Hoshea. But meanwhile, Assyria is expanding. They tried to invade the ten tribes of the north under King Ahab, but they failed but they were going to come back. They came back under Tiglath-Pileser III. They took Naphtali. They took one tribe. They came back later under Shalmaneser and they took ten tribes and the ten tribes of Israel were lost and taken away out of the land. From then on, all that was left was little Judah in the south. And during Hezekiah's reign, 
Sennacherib came and besieged Jerusalem. We'll talk about that when we look at Isaiah tonight. It's the most dramatic event in which one angel defeated 185,000 Assyrians. That's what an angel can do. And I'll show you a photograph later of the skeletons of those 185,000. They've been found just outside Jerusalem. Under Ashurbanipal, they conquered Thebes and Upper Egypt, so they were a mighty empire by now. And then came two little prophets, Zephaniah we're not going to talk about, but let me read what he said about Nineveh. Zephaniah said this, he said, God will destroy Assyria and make its great capital Nineveh a desolate wasteland like a wilderness. That once proud city will become a pasture land for sheep and all sorts of wild animals will have their homes in her, hedgehogs will burrow there, the vultures and the owls will live among the ruins of her palaces, hooting from the gaping windows, and the ravens will croak from her doors, all her cedar panelling will lie open to the wind and the wave. That's what Zephaniah said among other things. But the man who finally went and told them they were absolutely finished was in fact Nahum. Uh, And though Zephaniah said it here, Nahum, like Jonah, went to Nineveh and said it there and gave them their final warning. Now, the one huge difference between Jonah and Nahum is, of course, that God did not let them off. Now, interestingly enough, they both describe God as slow to anger, but the difference is that with Nahum, time had run out. Once aroused, you cannot turn God's wrath away. Once you reach that point of boiling over, it is frequently called in the Bible the day of his wrath and nothing can turn it away then. While his wrath is simmering, it can be turned away, but when it boils over, nothing can stop it. And for different nations and for different individuals, it has boiled over at different times. And for the whole world, there is a day of wrath coming when people would rather be swallowed in an earthquake than look at the anger on the face of God and his son Jesus. That's in Revelation chapter 6. So God is now filled with wrath, he is boiling over, and though the king tries, the king of Nineveh tried to pray and fast again, he was trying to copy what happened with Jonah, but it didn't work this time and God would not accept it. So there comes a time when it is too late to change. The last verse of Nahum is, there is no remedy for your wound. Your injury is past healing. Now, funnily enough, this is described as good news, but not for the Assyrians. It is good news for Israel. Because see, Nahum was born when the ten tribes were occupied. He was born in occupied territory. He was born under Assyrian rule in the Holy Land. Can you imagine? Born and bred and brought up under the Assyrian. And so his prophecy of the doom of Nineveh is good news. And we get this lovely phrase, how beautiful are the feet of those 
who bring good tidings running over the mountains. Now, feet are not very beautiful, are they? Do you ever like photographs of your feet taken? Bad enough having your face photographed, but your feet, no. There's only one situation which feet are beautiful, that is feet that have run with good news. And you would kiss the feet of somebody who brought you news that your land which has been occupied your whole life by cruel enemies, that freedom is about to come, have the same reaction that East Europe was having a year or two back. So it's great news. In fact, Nahum says, everyone who hears the news about you will clap their hands at your fall. For who has not felt your endless cruelty? It is a vivid prophecy. Now, once again, there's a question which we must ask. Does God control history as well as nature? See, if Jonah asks you, does God control nature? Nahum asks you, does God control history? And the Bible says, because it's theistic in its outlook, the Bible says it is God who draws the atlases of history. Paul on Mars Hill at Athens said to the Greeks, God allots a nation its room in time and space. And so it is God who allows a nation to rise and get an empire. It's God who brings it to an end. I believe God brought the British Empire to an end. The empire in which the sun never set. When we washed our hands of the Jewish people in 1947, said we want nothing more to do with the Jews, God said, then you can't look after anybody else. And within five years, the empire had gone. That's my understanding of history. God not only controls all of nature, he controls all of history. And it's he who raises up princes and brings them down. It's he who allows a nation to expand and then crushes it. And you know, Christians in Germany, two years before the wall came down in Berlin, were announcing in the name of Jesus that God was bringing that wall down. Because they believe that God is in charge of history and that therefore history is predictable. And part of the prophet's task was to predict history and to write history before it happened. And here is Nahum saying Nineveh is finished, which seems unbelievable when you look at the power and the might of Nineveh. And yet it happened within a very short space of time. Nahum is almost all prediction. So let's just analyse Nahum's little prophecy. It's only three chapters and they divide very easily between the three chapters. They're all concerned with the fall of Nineveh. First of all, there is the proclamation of who is going to be touched by God. The divine intervention means disaster for God's enemies and deliverance for his friends. When God intervenes, it always has this dual character. When God steps into history and acts, it means disaster for all his enemies, those who defy God and who trust themselves. Those are the enemies of God. They trust in their own strength and they defy God and when God acts, it is they who face disaster. That is because as Nahum makes quite clear that one side of God's character is that he's a jealous God. Now, he's not envious. God doesn't envy anybody anything because it's all his anyway. I love Psalm 50 here where it says, God says, if I were hungry, I wouldn't tell you. 
You know, that's a lovely little insight into God's sufficiency. It goes on, the cattle on a thousand hills are mine, the silver and gold is mine, but it begins, if I were hungry, I wouldn't tell you. I'd just go and help myself to what is mine. See? But God is jealous. Now, that's different. You're envious about what somebody else has. You are jealous about what you have, which somebody wants to take from you. Do you understand? You may be envious about someone else's wife, but you would be jealous about your own. And God is jealous for his name. He is jealous for his reputation. He is jealous for his people. He is jealous for his world. God says, it's my name, it's my reputation, it's my world. And I'm not having people behave like this in my world. That's jealousy. And jealousy leads to vengeance. That's another word of Nahum's. We need to remember that God is a God of vengeance because he is a God of jealousy. He's not a God of malicious revenge. He's a God of vengeance. That's why you are exhorted in the Bible, never repay evil with evil. Just leave it to God. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. See? I wonder when you last heard a sermon on God's jealousy or God's vengeance. But that's part of his character because he's a holy God. And Nahum concentrates almost exclusively on God's jealousy and on his vengeance against those who defy him and trust themselves. But those who have trusted God all through the Assyrian atrocities and believe that God would one day sort it all out, they're going to be delivered. So it's good news. The first chapter is an acrostic poem. That means that each verse begins with the next letter of the alphabet. If you could read it in Hebrew, it's a very skillfully constructed poem, easily remembered because each statement begins with the next letter of the alphabet. An acrostic is a way of helping people to remember what's been said. Now, he didn't do it so the Ninevites could remember it, but so that his people in Israel could remember it easily. It was good news for them. Store it in your heart. Learn it off by heart. Repeat it to yourself. Tell it to your children. Nineveh is finished because God is jealous for his name. That's chapter 1. And he alternates through chapter 1 a statement to Nineveh, a statement to Israel. Bad news to Nineveh, good news to Israel. Bad news to Nineveh, good news to Israel. Marvellous literary work. These prophets could put words together by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in a memorable way. Then we come to chapter 2. And if chapter 1 is a proclamation that Nineveh will fall, chapter 2 is a description of how it will happen. And it is absolutely astonishing in its detail. Uh, I was watching TV when the first CBN reporter in Baghdad said the first bombs are falling. Did you see that memorable thing? In the marvel of television, you see a war actually start now. Incredible. First time that's ever happened that millions around the world actually saw hostilities begin. But Nahum saw them begin before they even happened and describes them like a television reporter as if he's seeing it unroll in front of him and yet it hasn't happened yet. But it is so vivid in detail. It's full of poetic uh, feelings. It's a memorable description uh, in fact, uh, when I read it, I was very reminded of Alfred Lord Tennyson, whose uh, centenary of his death was last year, as I told you. 
Do you remember? Half a league, half a league, half a league onward. All in the valley of death rode the 600. Cannon to the right of them, cannon to the left of them, cannon in front of them, volleyed and thundered. Did you ever learn that at school? Yeah. They don't teach them things like that nowadays, perhaps for the better. Okay, let me read a bit of Nahum, see if it reminds you. Um, Nineveh, you're finished. You're already surrounded by enemy armies. Sound the alarm, man the ramparts, muster your your defences full force and keep a sharp watch for the enemy attack to begin. For the land of the people of God lies empty and broken after your attacks. But the Lord will restore their honour and power again. Shields flash red in the sunlight, the attack begins. See their scarlet uniforms, see their glittering chariots moving forward side by side, pulled by prancing steeds. Your own chariots race recklessly along the streets and through the squares, darting like lightning, gleaming like torches. The king shouts for his officers. They stumble in their haste, rushing to the walls to set up their defences. But too late! The river gates are open. The enemy has entered. The palace is in panic. So it goes on. Boy, that's hot stuff, isn't it? Fascinating thing is that the people who came to destroy Nineveh wore scarlet uniforms. And there was no army in Nahum's day that wore scarlet uniforms. He even saw the colour of their uniforms and he saw how they got in through the river gates. They drained the river and came in through the sluice gates. They got into Nineveh. And, And he saw it all happening. You read Nahum. It's a vivid description. Listen to the poetry. Woe to Nineveh, city of blood, full of lies, crammed with plunder. Listen. I hear the hear the crack of the whips as the chariots rush forward against her, wheels rumbling, horses' hooves pounding and chariots clattering as they bump wildly through the streets. See the flashing swords and glittering spears in the upraised hands of the cavalry. The dead are lying in the streets, bodies, heaps of bodies everywhere. Men stumble over them, stum- scramble to their feet and fall again. All this because Nineveh sold herself to the enemies of God. Vivid writing. Can you imagine the guy preaching this and he's seeing it all happen? Vivid. That's chapter 2. And he, he describes, first of all, a day of looting. He sees the city looted, everything of value taken away, all the treasures gone. And then he says, I see a den of lions, but the lions are weak and dying. Do you remember when somebody called Britain a toothless lion? That's what Nahum is calling Nineveh. Now that's very significant because the lion was the emblem of Assyria. They regarded themselves as lions, but here they've become toothless lions or paper tigers. They are no longer a threat to anyone. They are in terror themselves. There's a kind of poetic justice in this. And then chapter 3, he moves from description to explanation why. You see, he says, first of all, he proclaims that God is going to intervene on behalf of his friends and against his enemies. But then comes the description, how will this happen? By an invasion of a greater force coming into the city and taking over this den of lions. But the explanation 
Why is this happening? And the answer is because of the sheer inhumanity of Assyria. You see, they didn't know the Ten Commandments, so God doesn't judge them for breaking the Ten Commandments. When God sends a prophet to pronounce against people who are not the people of God, he doesn't throw the Ten Commandments at them. We shall see that in Amos. He throws at them inhumanity that everybody knows that they should be kind rather than cruel. Those who have never heard of the Ten Commandments know it's wrong to be barbaric and cruel and to torture people. Everybody knows that. So God judges people by what they know. That's a principle that goes right through Scripture. If a person don't, doesn't know the Ten Commandments, they will not be judged for breaking the Ten Commandments. If a person's never heard of Christ, they will not be judged for not having heard of Christ. But everybody has some knowledge of God through creation outside them and conscience inside them. And God will judge everybody by what their own conscience knew. And we all know inhumanity is wrong, don't we? The United Nations document U144, the Declaration of Human Rights. It didn't take Christians to write that. We know human rights and it was because they rode over human rights that this is happening to them, that they conquered by force. That was how they expanded. They just, it was like a blitzkrieg and they had chariots and they just rode over a country, slaughtered all the inhabitants and took it by force. God can give you more territory without you taking it by force. See, there is a right way to expand in a wrong way. But the other thing that he mentions particularly is that they were corrupted by finance. That is singled out, that when they became wealthy, that corrupted them and bribery became common. And it was these two things that Nahum said they knew were wrong for which God is destroying their city. I find those two things remarkable because our world is not a stranger to either and people know it's wrong. Thank God we live in a country where bribery is not too bad yet but it's getting worse. It really is. When you go to a country and you can't get a driving license or a passport without bribing everybody on the way into the office, you know, you're glad to get back here. Those of you who travel know this. But that's what happened here. They conquered by force and they were corrupted by finance. And so says Nahum, woe to this bloody city. The word woe unfortunately has lost its meaning for us. It is a curse, the terrible word. You should never use it. I'm afraid most often in our country we hear a parent say, now woe betide you if you do that again. Never say that to a child. You are cursing that child. Do you remember, if you go to Sea of Galilee today, you say, oh, what a beautiful place. You were describing it this morning. It is so beautiful that everybody loves it. It is totally different from what it was in Jesus' day. There were 250,000 people living around the shores of Galilee in Jesus' day. It was highly urbanised. Capernaum was a big fishing town. So was Bethsaida and Chorazin. Where are these towns? Why is it that if you go there today, you have to stay in Tiberias? 
which is the only town on the shores of Galilee. I'll tell you why, because Jesus cursed all the other towns. He said, woe to you, Capernaum, woe to you, Bethsaida, woe to you, Chorazin. If the mighty works that had been done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they'd have repented long ago. The only town he didn't curse was Tiberias. He never said, woe to you, Tiberias. The result is Tiberias is still there. The others, you can hardly find them. Just a few stones. Woe. Woe to that bloody city. That's a terrible curse. And Nahum pronounced it. Well, what happened to Nineveh less than a decade later after Nahum pronounced that, it all happened to the last detail. To the last detail. And it has never been inhabited again. Let me show you again the picture of it today. There's the great palace and that's what it's like. And there are owls and hedgehogs and all the wild beasts that Zephaniah said would inhabit. That's all you can find there today. Nineveh has gone never to be inhabited again. It was lost for centuries. Nobody knew where it was. In fact, people doubted it, its existence until 1820 when an Englishman called Layard was tramping through the area and staying in the town on the west bank of the Tigris and he looked opposite and he saw that pile of rubble. He said, what's that? They didn't know. And he went over and after digging around, he thought, I think I've found Nineveh. And he had. What happened to Nahum? Well, he didn't go back home actually. You will find his tomb on the west bank of the Tigris today. And if you go, they will point to the tomb and say, that's where Nahum lies. So his tomb is on the opposite bank to that and it's still there, revered by the Arabs as one of the prophets. Well, let's conclude. I want to look at both Amos and Nahum and the other prophets and say, why study the prophets? I mean, it's not our history and it's not even our people, we're not. Jews? Why should we study the history of other people so long ago and so far away? What's it got to do with us? The answer is very simple, so that we may get to know God better because God hasn't changed one little bit and we can see through these prophets what God is like because the prophets reveal God, the God Yahweh, which can either be translated I am uh, it's not quite that, it's a participle rather than a straight verb, or, as I suggested, always. That really gets it across to me. The God who always is, always the same. Well now, the three major things that the prophets seem to focus in on I've listed here. First, they focus on the activity of God, what he has done, what he is doing, what he's going to do. And there's no doubt they present him as an all-powerful God. If you recite the Apostles' Creed in church every Sunday, you begin that way. I believe in God the Father Almighty. Not just the Father, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. And he is presented as so powerful that he is in total control of both nature and history. Therefore, miracles can happen in nature and he can cause movements 
to happen in history. Now that is a concept of God we must keep hold of because in our modern scientific age when people regard nature as a closed system and history as entirely the result of economic forces, it is not easy to remember that God is in total control of both. And reading the prophets regularly keeps this picture of a mighty God who can make anything happen in nature and anything happen in history. That is the philosophy we call theism and that is the philosophy of the Bible. That's the first great reason for reading the prophets. Secondly, moving now from his activity to his integrity, God is consistent. God is always the same. He does not change in character and God is a unique combination of justice and mercy. And if you go to either of those too much and forget the other, you will get an unbalanced view of God. If you only think of God's justice, you get too hard a view of God. If you only think of his mercy, you get too soft a view of God. And in the one case there will be fear but no love and in the other case there will be love but no fear. And we need both. And the prophets really do wonderfully balance. The next two studies we're going to have are Amos and Hosea. Well, if ever a prophet majored on the justice of God, it was Amos. And if ever a prophet majored on the mercy, it was Hosea. And God sent those two men to the same place at the same time with their two different messages to keep it balanced. His justice means that he must punish sin and his mercy means that he longs to forgive it and pardon it. Now there's a tension there. There must be a tension for God and it's only resolved at the cross because only at the cross do justice and mercy meet and sins are both punished and pardoned at the same place and the same time except that Jesus takes the punishment and we get the pardon. Do you see? But that is the integrity of God's character and therefore you can predict how God will behave. He will exercise mercy as long as he, as he can but when it is persistently refused, he must exercise justice. That's the message of Jonah Nahum. And then thirdly, the prophets do emphasise his flexibility. To me this is a most important insight into God. It is that God can change his plans. They're not fixed for all eternity. He can change his plans for people depending on how they react to him. And this comes out in Jeremiah particularly where Jeremiah went to the potter's house and saw the potter trying to make the clay into a beautiful vase but the clay would not run well in the potter's hands to make this vase so the potter pushed it back into a lump and made a crude thick pot with it. And God said, Jeremiah, have you learned the lesson of the potter and the clay? Now most preachers I've heard on the potter and the clay get it totally wrong. They say the potter decides what shape the clay will be. You know, that's predestination. If he decides this or he decides that, that's all you can do about it, nothing. Actually, it is the clay that is deciding whether it be a beautiful vase or a crude pot, depending on whether it responds to the potter's hands 
Do you follow that? Now that's terribly important. And God then said to Jeremiah, did you learn the lesson of the potter and the clay? I wanted to make Israel a vessel of my mercy, but they wouldn't have it, so I'm making them a pot full of my justice. But he said, if they repent, then I will relent and will make them into a beautiful vase again. Now that is the flexibility of God. God is willing to respond to us. Isn't that amazing? He's wanting us to respond to him and if we do, he can change his plans and make good plans for us and not evil. But if we will not respond to his mercy, then he must change and make evil plans for us. Do you get this? God is personal, he's alive and he's in, we're in a living relationship with him and things are not fixed, that's fatalism, that's fate. Things are not fixed. God is flexible and he adjusts to his people and where his people respond rightly, he makes us into a beautiful vessel. But when we respond wrongly, he will still make a vessel of us, that's his privilege, but it will be a vessel full of his justice and we will be a demonstration of God to the rest of the world but a demonstration of his justice and not his mercy. The choice is yours. What sort of clay do you want to be? Do you want to demonstrate his mercy to the world or his justice? You will demonstrate one or the other and it isn't God who decrees which you will be, it is you who decide whether to respond to him. Understand? Well now, the flexibility of God is to me a very precious truth. The future is not fixed, it's not predetermined, it's open because it's personal. The one thing God cannot change, even God himself, he cannot change the past but he can change the future and will. Now that's a concept of God which I find many Christians haven't yet grasped, that God is flexible. He's unchanging in character, his integrity is unchanging, but his plans for us can change because he's a personal living God and he's wanting a response from us and he will respond to our response. The Bible even dares to say that God repents when we repent, but the word repent simply means change mind. So when we change our mind, God changes his. Isn't that a lovely thought? But he doesn't change his character and that's an even greater thought. You can always rely on him. Well, this is why I encourage people to read the prophets. They get to know God better and they know he's a powerful God and can do anything in nature and history. He's a predictable God. He will act according to his integrity of character and therefore you can know how he will respond. But he is also a personal God who wants a living relationship with us so that he can respond to us and we can respond to him. That's the God we worship. Praise his name. You have been listening to David Pawson's Unlocking the Bible. Visual materials featured in this talk and other free resources like this can be found online at davidpawson.org. 